I'm here with Father Carter Griffin, and he is director of John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., a minor seminary, uh, meaning it's college seminary, philosophy degrees. It's And you all study, the students study it? They study Catholic University. We also have a number of pre-theologians, so they already have college degrees, but they're in two years of pre-theology. Now, they're roughly what age would those guys be that are coming back to get the pre-theology? Pretty young. We don't take any guys who are older, um, but we've had we've had guys who are in their 30s, but for the most part, it's guys who are in their 20s. Oh, okay. But the majority of the seminary is college age, 18 to 22. Oh. So a number of, is that kind of on the rise, more 18-year-olds going in? and. I don't know what the numbers are, but certainly uh, the larger on the larger pattern, yeah. I mean, when I started in vocations nine years ago, um, well, let's say a few years before that, out of 50 seminarians of the Archdiocese of Washington, we might have had one or two that were college, three or four maybe, yeah. uh, you know, and then it started to go up a little bit, and then it started to really take off. My theory is that it's the children of the children formed by John Paul II, <laughs> you know? So it's like the people who come of age who are sort of formed in that right. image, and not just John Paul II, yeah. but also just kind of like coming through a lot of the mm -hmm. times of crisis and everything like that. Well, they are not, they've married each other, you know, mm -hmm. solid Catholic homes, and we all, we all know those young, you know, yeah. couples, and now their children are, are entering college. And so right. some of them are open to the vocation. Right. And um, so most of them are coming from like intact yeah, and, the vast majority. Yeah, yeah we, we, it's not a cross section of their generation. I, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, yeah. but out of the fifty we have right now, maybe five come from broken homes, something like that. Yeah, yeah. and you have to deal a lot with uh, human formation. And what are some of the issues that you stress? You find yourself dealing with it for them. A big one is. Um, well, okay, so they, they, they come in, they're, they're young, first of all, and, and anyone that age is going to be dealing with, you know, certain struggles of uh, learning who they are, coming to grips with who they are, learning how to make a commitment, learning how to, you know, give themselves to something bigger than themselves, uh, learning how to be uh, integral human beings, learning chastity, you know, learning discipline, hard work, I mean, all those things that are kind of go into sort of anyone kind of growing up, and especially coming from a culture that in certain respects is pretty toxic, you know, and they're coming even from the best families, they're still affected by the internet and by things like that. So what we find a lot of the, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of things that are sort of basic laying basic foundations of making men into generous and uh, kind of sincere and, you know, pure uh, young men who are able to kind of give of themselves. Um, you know, I think part of the part of the struggle that we've we've also found is uh, a certain degree of entitlement. You know, in that generation, sort of, it's uh, the generation is probably unfairly known for that, the whole millennial generation and everything, and that's kind of that's been overwrought a little bit. But there is some truth to it. You know, yeah. I mean, they grew up in yeah. such intense prosperity and being so carefully hovered about by many of their parents, even the good parents. You know, yeah. that it's hard not to emerge from that with a certain degree of entitlement. So we have to work through that too. And you take from a number of dioceses? Or? We do, yeah. About half our guys are from D.C., and then we take from mainly the surrounding dioceses around uh, Washington. We have a couple of outliers, but for the most part, it's, right. um, yeah, those areas. Now, you have a Navy background. Yeah. So I think uh -huh. that would really be an asset for college formation. You know, it? it actually has been, um, I mean, partly for the kind of the obvious things and kind of people smile when they, you know, I was vice rector until last year, and so dean of men and everything like that, we would 
we would do uh, I would do room inspections every morning and stuff like that. You know, and make it your wasn't, bed. <laughs> yeah, basically, it wasn't Marine Corps inspections yeah. or anything. But you have to make your bed. You have to pick up your clothes. You have to be tidy. You know, yeah. it's good discipline for the guys. You know, um, so that sort of thing. Uh, but also, I think what maybe at a at a deeper level has been very helpful for me in this work is kind of the knowledge of what young first of all what young men what young men as kind of aspire to whether or not they even know it you know and 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 being called to a kind of a being called to a, uh, kind of a higher level of excellence is something that a young a young man wants that um, I find that a young man actually in seminary wants strong formation he wants good formation he wants to be even told what what he's doing wrong he wants correction you know when it's done well and wisely and, and gently um, so all of those things, I think of sort of building a team, you know, is kind of, that's what a seminary is. You're sort of all on the same page. Uh, and, and I, I do sort of find that it's a very similar kind of experience that I had on the ship, you know, where you have yeah. these kind of all these young, all these young guys who are sort of on the same page and the same mission, yeah. uh, and striving for that. So, yeah, I think it's been helpful. I know when I was in seminary, they had, a, I forgot what the average age was like close to 30 or something, but you'd have some older guys and. And they had a big problem sometimes with uh, all the rules of the seminary. But, you know, I came back later, I reflected just, you need some kind of rules. Yeah, some of them are arbitrary, but it's to see if you can be obedient, if you can't have the discipline. And, you know, the stuff isn't, you just have to put it somewhere. You know, you have to have the structure yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And uh, it just seemed like the military would be perfect. Really. Yeah, right. Yeah. We try really hard not to make anything arbitrary. I mean, I, I'm sure they think some things are, but we also try to like ask for their feedback a lot. We try to get, you know, yeah. we're a fairly new seminary. We're only nine years old. And so a lot of the beginning stuff, we really wanted to get a lot of their feedback, their input, you know, how right. things are going, what they're experiencing. So we've tried to kind of keep doing that, which I think has been helpful in this day and age where I think a lot of people are concerned um, that seminarians are, are kind of uh, sort of powerless, you know, or something right. like that, you know, in the midst of seminary. And I suppose there are some legitimate fears there we have to be careful of, but we certainly have not ever had that experience, I think, at JP2, yeah. where we've been really open to receiving corrections from the seminarians, too. And there's not many, like, four-year minor seminaries, are there in our other country? Not too, too many, but there are a good number. Uh, I forgot the last count of maybe 13, 15, oh, something is like that. that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that, what, what's kind We'd of... We'd probably be on the bigger side of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the kind of a common... Is there like a certain story you hear from the seminaries, their discernment, like why they're there? I know like with the older seminaries, you'd hear like some kind of big time conversion story. Yeah. Is it true in these young guys? Less, like, a lot less, yeah. yeah, of the big time conversion story. And, you know, I've often felt that sometimes I think those big time conversion stories were kind of uh, exaggerated a little bit. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, it, there clearly are yeah. cases, you yeah. know, I mean, of truly the thing, but it almost became de rigueur, almost like a, like a feather in your cap, you know, if, right. if the bigger the sinner you were that, you know, the, um, the, how much should we St. Augustine I am kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that that's not necessarily a healthy thing to kind of inculcate in that kind of a vocation story. I think people should be honest about the grace of God and how they have, how they have been changed and transformed by that grace. Um, without exaggerating some of that stuff. But having said that, no, I, 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 a lot of the stories are gentler. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're just, they're kind of, they grew up in good, solid Catholic families. Yeah. They kind of started to think, it's kind of old, sort of what you hear about from the, from the, from the, 50s. From, from the 50s or whatever, you know, <laughs> these kids knew that when they were seven years old. Uh -huh. Not all, a lot of them find it in high school. Yeah. So the common, you asked about what, what is sort of common in their stories. I think the common bond, um, there are a couple of common bonds. One is there's always, and this has always been true, there's always, I'm always listening for the person. Like, who is it? You know, it's not, 
So they, you, know, you talk about the structures and the circumstances, but it always ends up being this priest, this teacher at school, this person in their life, this buddy of theirs. Who, you know, it, what it, it's, I'm always listening to that. That's the hook for me. It's always through a person that God makes the call, uh, even if they don't even know it. It's a girlfriend. It's like somebody, you know, and somebody has really turned their hearts and started them on this journey, which eventually leads to them being in the seminary. So I think that's a common bond. I don't think I've ever heard out of the thousands maybe that I've heard of vocations, whether it's just completely independent of, of the role, the decisive role of was, a person. It was true for me. It was, yeah, was it? a friend of mine, a woman friend. Yeah. It was my age, and she put this vocation magazine in my pew. I was at a daily mass, <laughs> and uh, I flipped it open and felt the call. Yeah, and, uh, wow. I yeah. never thought of that. Yeah, it's always through a person. And then I think another common bond uh, is almost always adoration. There's almost mm-hmm. always adoration in there somewhere. Not always, but but always, uh, almost always. Uh, and or daily mass, you know, coming to, I mean, just the sacraments. But adoration seems to have, and I think part of that is with young men today in this highly visually saturated culture, that there's something about adoration that is very purifying, very healing. And um, so these guys, you know, what do they say, the average age now of, First exposure to internet pornography is eight, you know, it's, it's plummeted from 11 <laughs> a few years ago. I mean, it's, huh. it's getting to be outrageous, you know. Yeah. And so when you're exposed to something you don't even understand at such mm-hmm. a young age, I think there's something about having that peace and that, you know, being able to behold God with it, that it helps to purify that. And that opens up some of the avenues for grace to come in for a vocation. I think those, that, that's a common, common thread as well. Yeah, I do. I, I think that's so true about adoration, just to purify our hearts of sin and stuff it's just like a i've heard some people talk about it like it's a radiation for cancer treatment you know this like grace the truth of, yeah. Yeah, radiation therapy i've heard that yeah i use that sometimes yeah you know and especially when you're not sure what to do in prayer uh, you know to just be there and just be present with yeah. our lord like a child who just wants to be near his or her father you know while he's paying bills at the desk or whatever it's yeah. just proximity you don't yeah. have to have fancy conversation or just to be with them. And I, I think that's encouraging for guys because sometimes, you know, our prayer doesn't feel that effective. And do you hear us, Our Lady in the stories? So? Yeah, yeah, very often. But I would also say that there's a fair number of guys who come in who have never been exposed really deeply to Marian devotion. It's always something we focus on in the seminary and very many of them kind of experience kind of a second conversion with Our Lady. There and I don't think it's it's like a you know suspicion or there's any reason again it's just they've, it's never really been inculcated for many of them yeah. and so when they first are exposed to it's a little it seems a little bit foreign almost like perhaps maybe it was for me but having been a Protestant but when it, when they ex- get exposed to her then then suddenly they realize the beauty and the power of this uh, of this devotion to the Mother of God and uh, many of them do the total consecration when they're at the seminary with us and you know we pray the Rosary together and different things like that too. Yeah. I would imagine with the 18, 22-year-olds, uh, must be a lot of energy. I, I remember, you know, at Mount St. Mary's and St. Charles, there's just like this masculine energy. You've got all these guys locked up and uh, a lot of humor, a yeah. lot of energy. Oh, lots, yeah. A lot yeah. of pranks, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of banter, but also like uh, a lot of deep friendships are built. You know, I mean, it's one of the things about being a place where like the Navy too, where, you know, the um, kind of a, a good sense of virility, a, a positive sense of masculinity is is really fostered there. Um, and so bonds are formed, yeah. deep bonds are formed 
which are not in any way kind of weird, you know, or yeah. exclusive. Right. Um, and, and that, I think, is very, very healthy. It, it's also healthy, by the way, that I know you're joking around, but I mean, I think a lot of people do think that like a seminary is basically like a, you know, a, a minor prison, you know, <laughs> so, and, it, and it just isn't. We have a really strong sense of them going onto the campus. They take classes with CUA kids, yeah. you know, men and women. Who are not seminarians, <laughs> obviously, and um, engaging with different uh, student activities. Um, we try to be pretty liberal. We, we, we have certainly adoration every day, mass every day in the seminary, and most weekends are in the seminary. But we also have free weekends and vacations so they get out, which yeah. is also, I think, really good. But yeah, there is a very strong sense of, of, uh, of fraternity and bond in the seminary, which is yeah. great. And when they enter the minor seminary, they're part of a Dawson program. They've, yeah. They've gone through that. Yeah. So yeah. Kind of, so it's a pretty, yeah, they, and there's a pretty rigorous process of selection, as you yeah. know, with the, all the kind of the interviews and yeah. the psychologicals and the physicals and the, all that stuff that goes right. into that. Right. Uh, and, and they are discerning priesthood. A, a lot of them end up discerning out. It's one of the reasons for a college seminary. It's a reason for any seminary, but it's especially for college seminaries to help them see is this their vocation? So we run about the national average, which is about half, end up not going on to theology after four years yeah. if they come in as freshmen. Um, maybe it's slightly more than that, end up going to theology at these, these last few years. But, um, but that's very healthy, I think. You know, yeah. and, and I'm very happy about the guys who do leave, you know, are very close where they, they come by. They, you know, they're often married within a few years, which I think is a great yeah. sign of them being able to make a commitment. And, right, you know, because right. most kids their age obviously are not getting married until 10 years later. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of a kind of a cool experience of, of sort of forming Christian men, yeah. many of whom will also be priests. Right. Yeah. Now, in your formation, like with the spiritual life and prayer, how do you uh, teach them to pray? What are some... I'm thinking somebody listening to this might be blessed by that. Some of the, the teachings or practices you try to inculcate. Yeah. Well, okay. I think um, a big thing that we really try to stress is uh, Lexio Divina, right? Which is obviously not just for seminarians. And that and all can really learn some of the basic principles of that. I, I think we can overcomplicate it and people, even like calling it by a Latin name is a little bit scary. you know. Right. <laughs> and it's simply, it's praying with the scriptures. Yeah. You know, it was... I forget also St. Augustine who said that the scripture is the ordinary way that God speaks to us. You know, we often, we talk about prayer as a conversation. And I think a lot of people silently, or maybe not silently, wonder, well, I'm the only one speaking here. You know, I don't yeah. hear anything back, you know, but yeah. that's what the scriptures are, you know. And so at least making that a part is we encourage men to make a holy hour every day, which would be an hour of, of, of intensive mental prayer, which is not the liturgy, the hours of bravery. It's not rosary. It's not, I mean, those are all obviously important, great things should be done as well. But this is just time for prayer, you know, mental prayer right. um, with the Lord. And uh, typically, they do it all at one time. They can do it in two different segments if they prefer. Um, anyway, so at least part of that time should be spent with this idea of Lectio Divina, which is simply the prayerful reading of Scripture and allowing yourself to pause as you read it. Right. So they're kind of the four kind of traditional steps, or you you read it maybe several times very slowly. You know, then you meditate on it. That is to say, you apply your intellect. You think about it. You think about what the words mean. You think about the meaning of that parable or that story. Maybe you relate it to other parts of Scripture. You you apply your mind, uh, and you spend some time with that. And then the third stage, which believe it or not, that third stage is in the Latin called oratio, and that's the word for prayer, which suggests that it's really at the third stage when you really are beginning to pray. That everything else is kind of preparing for that. That is to say, reading and thinking are sort of the or so the preparation for it. I think a lot of people get stuck in the thinking and they yeah. think they're, they're praying, you know, and, 
and it's a good thing to do, but that it's prayer is not Bible study. You know, right. it's like you do that in order to the oratio, which is basically our response to what we've what we've read, what we've understood, and so you're making acts of the will of humility and of joy of of um, of desire for the Lord and you know desire for communion, whatever it might be. All these different ways you're responding to what you've thought about, and you do that, and that's and you kind of and it, and it becomes kind of this organic thing where then you kind of go back to the text and maybe your heart pauses on a certain word, and then you think about that, and then you pray about that, and then you keep going a little bit further. It's this very kind of uh, intimate um, engagement with the text, which anyone can do. It doesn't take any Bible you know, study degrees. It doesn't require any theology. It's just there's, a, there's, a, there's an innate power to the scriptures. Um, and then that fourth stage is contemplatio, which is just resting in whatever has happened to you in the course of that that meditation with the scriptures. Um, it's something that takes time. Um, it's good to have a sort of a mentor person that you can kind of talk to. And so we have that obviously built in in the seminary. Um, so I think that's a, ma- a major part of what we try to instill in prayer, uh, as well as, you know, something that I use with my formation advisees often is this acronym. I'm sure you've heard this is ACTS, you know, A-C-T-S, which, um, which means adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Which are really the four main parts of prayer, and I, you know I, you can do a whole holy hour with just going through those four. You know, just spending some time in adoration, just present and praising our Lord, His ex- the fact that He exists, the fact that I exist, the fact that I can love Him. You know, just just spending adoration and contrition. You know, thinking about your sins and sorrow for your sins, great for, gratitude for you know past forgiveness of sins, all that, and then um, Thanksgiving. You know, think about all the blessings in your life. And how grateful you are. I mean, that itself can be a whole holy hour. And then supplication, which is which is intercessory prayer. You know, praying for your needs, for other people's needs. You know, going through the people in your life. People have asked you to pray for them. People you've promised to pray for. So there are a lot of things we can bring to our prayer. And I think if people knew that, then it, it, prayer would be a little bit less scary. You know, like, what do I do? Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot to do. You know, and we right. can bring all the stuff from your life there. And just talk to our Lord in these different ways. Um, it becomes something that you end up actually kind of thirsting for and wanting more of, you know. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. which, is, which is, and when that happens to a guy, it's really, it's really beautiful to see that shift. Yeah. In your own story, uh, you mentioned you were raised uh, Protestant. It was like you're a devout Protestant growing up. Or? I'd say so. So uh-huh. I probably was the kind of the religious kid in the family more. I'd be like, "Are we going to church today?" <laughs> and they were like, uh, "Sure." Uh-huh. Um, we grew up abroad for the most part. My dad worked for Eastman Kodak. Uh, it was this company that used to make cameras and stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure where it is now, but it's uh, uh, poor Kodak. But anyway, we, my dad was with them in the international division. Um, and so we moved abroad when I was really young, when I was four. Uh, and we had a great, wonderful life down there. But we did move every few years. Yeah. And so as Protestants, there was usually just one kind of English-speaking Protestant church in each country. And so we just went to that one. And um, got to know some really fine pastors. Uh, it's Were kind you of, in Europe? Or? No, South America, almost entirely oh. South America. Later on, my, after I went to boarding school, my, parent, my parents went off to Europe and then uh, the Middle East. But um, yeah, and, and sort of kind of part of the th- interesting thing is about the celibacy question is that. Um, yeah, my experience with pastors growing up were all married men, you know, and very positive experiences, by the way. Um, so yeah, that was kind of that was my background, and it was in college uh, through um, a kind of a, a variety of influences. But sort of the catalyst 
was a girl that I was starting to get to know who I was interested in, who was Catholic, and she took me to Mass. And that was kind of the beginning of this process. And then a, a dear friend of mine who was my next-door neighbor in college, I knew he was a devout Catholic, and I asked him to take me to his, to his parish and meet the priest, and that's what I did. Mm. So and it kind of the you know, rest kind of fell from that. And you went to Princeton? Princeton, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you were in the Navy? Or and then I was in the Navy, right. I went to officer candidate school and was four years a surface warfare officer, which is like a, a ship driver, you know. <laughs> a driver, huh? Well, <laughs> that's what they call you. You're on ships as opposed to subs or, you know, oh, okay. or aircraft. <laughs> yeah. And what did you study at Princeton? I was in the Woodrow Wilson School, so I was kind of uh, focused on international relations and politics, um, political theory. Uh, but And my, my thought was perhaps to become... I mean, I, I did. I was open to the possibility of, of being a naval officer because I knew I'd be doing that for four years, um, and possibly making it a career. But otherwise, I was thinking of of being a lawyer, a lawyer en route to, in a political career, yeah. or State Department or something like that. Oh. And um, was Robert George there when you were? He was, and by the time I was smart enough to realize that I should have taken his class, it was too late. <laughs> <laughs> so I never took the great class of the great Robbie George. Yeah, <laughs> but I've gotten to know him, and we've you know become friendly since. And was there something with the priesthood? Was someone invited you to come and see, or how you know, for the priesthood, it was. Um, I, I got to know some very fine priests uh, at my time in Princeton, and also. Uh, afterwards, a uh, number of priests of Opus Dei were very influential in my, in my kind of path. And um, there was a, a real attraction to the priesthood, even when I was a new convert. But it was also, I was a new convert, you know, and I think everyone, including myself, figured it was just kind of the new convert's yeah. enthusiasm. So right. I went into the Navy, didn't think anything more of it, but it just never quite went away. In fact, there's a story, I, I had another, I had a, another, um, so I had had a couple of girlfriends since the one that actually originally kind of started me on that path. But one was in the Navy, and um, so I was really kind of attached to her. And I was thinking that maybe I was called. I was still kind of interested in the priesthood, but I just wasn't sure. I was back and forth. One day I was priesthood. One day I was going to, you know. And we were out on a deployment, uh, Middle East deployment, and we're on our way back crossing the Atlantic, and there's really nothing going on. And so people are just like watching movies and stuff like that yeah. when you're not on watch. I mean, there's just not a whole lot to do. I normally didn't watch the movies, but they were going to watch Sound of Music, which is basically a story about a woman who leaves the convent and gets married. You know? <laughs> so I am um, watching this movie, and it's just a positive view of marriage. And I'll never forget going to bed thinking, thank God my prayer has been answered. Now I know what I'm called to. I'm called to marriage. You know? And I decide that the question is settled, finally. And I went to bed, and I woke up, and I knew that I had to be a priest, you know. And oh, wow. without, and that was however many twenty something years ago, and I just haven't looked back since. And I think what happened is, and and maybe this will be helpful for for somebody who's listening right now. What happened is that I I had kind of almost guilted myself into thinking that I had to, you know, maybe I had to become a priest, and I was worried that my thinking about marriage was itself like the problem, you know. Uh -huh. And I had to give myself permission to let go of the priesthood, you know, right. to, to say that I'm going to not become a priest right. and not feel guilty about it and just yeah. focus on marriage. And when that happened, then kind of the very hindrance, uh -huh. you know, which was kind of the feeling that I couldn't not be a priest sort of thing, you know, um, kind of went away. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but it was something about letting go of that, that kind of freed my heart to actually embrace the priesthood, maybe for the first time for myself, right? I mean, yeah. thinking that I know I actually want this because I know God wants it and I know that this is what I'm, I'm meant to be, meant to do. And there's, there was no guilt involved. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. Uh -huh. 
Um, so if you would say like one person that really affected you, would it have been an Opus Dei priest that you met or something? Certainly those priests. I mean, I think actually John Paul II was a big yeah. influence on me, just kind of getting to know him from a distance. I actually met him one time when I was in the Navy. There's <laughs> another funny story behind that. But anyway, uh, so I got, uh, I think, J John Paul II. Um, and then, yeah, I think the Opus Dei priests. Uh, and I met, um, and, and then one of them, when he knew that I was interested in, in discerning the priesthood, that I was in priesthood, put me in touch with a wonderful priest from the Archdiocese of Washington, who is a dear friend to this day. Very mm -hmm. fine, holy, zealous priest. Uh, um, and I think the encounter with him really helped kind of confirm it for me. Yeah. yeah. And then you went on to study uh, theology at, well, I just want to tell one story. I was, we were talking that, you know, you were coming here and the Father Joseph had asked me, well, you know, I was here, yeah, I was at seminary and, uh, and you were in pre-the, I guess I was first theology. And, right. And you were in logic class. And I remember uh -huh. we had a brother, Brother Simon, that was in there. Yeah, with Brother you. Simon, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and he would talk about how you guys would be at the midterm or like some exam, and you would turn in this logic test, like, you know, very early. You know, it was like real intimidating to everybody because you would just sort of you know, spit it, drop it on the desk. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's certain things that, that that did come easily, but certainly not everything did. Oh boy, I tell you what. Yeah, it's like, yeah, logic was something that did always come easily to me. Not that anyone who listens to my arguments now would ever know. But, <laughs> but yeah. you went. You got a, a doctorate from Santa Croce, which is Opus Dei School. And yeah, so I, I ended up being back there. I was. Uh, I did the Dominicans at the Angelicum for my first cycle, and the second cycle was the Redemptorists at uh, Fonziana. And then the third cycle I did at Santa Croce. The first cycle at the Angelicum, that, that was just to be a priest? Was that theology? The first two. So when you go to the North American College, you end up doing, typically you end up doing first and second cycle, which means you get a licentiate. So in, okay. in, 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 the, uh, in the European system, the first three years are kind of like your bachelor's. Yeah. So yeah. I did the three years with the, at the Angelicum with the Dominicans, and then the two years was in moral theology, and that was for a licentiate. Uh -huh. And it was in the middle of that that I, I came back to get ordained to the priesthood. Oh, I see. Yeah, so you kind of, and then you go back with for a fifth year as a priest to finish yeah. off the licentiate. Did you like studying in Rome? Was that real formative? I did, yeah. I mean, I, I um, it wasn't as much of a culture shock for me because I'd already lived in so many other countries. And having had Spanish, the Italian came a little bit easier. So that I think that made it easier too. I loved being in Rome. I mean, I was there, um, you know, with all the saints and the beautiful churches and uh, the ending of John Paul II's time, the beginning of Benedict's. Um, wonderful seminarians. You know, there are challenges, too, to being in, uh, in Italy and, uh, and in Rome. It's, there's a little bit more of a self-starter kind of quality to the whole thing. You know, you yeah. have to, um, you know, if, if, you know, in the States, I think we have a more, more of a sense of kind of having to keep people accountable and with tests yeah. and papers and things like that. There's just not much of that there. So <laughs> if you don't, if you don't make the effort, to, then, and I tried to make the effort, but I yeah. can't say I always made the effort. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to, had to do some makeup work later on. <laughs> and what do you think uh, the importance of moral theology today? I, you know, I, there's obviously our culture in the world, you know, preaches a different theology and, uh, yeah. And sometimes I feel like, you know, we like to say in our culture, I'm spiritual, not religious. And I remember one time I saw this, this clip from Oprah Winfrey's show. She was talking about some spirituality thing and, and just feeling and being guided and all this kind of stuff. And I, 
And I said, well, you know, I just think to myself, you know, we have commandments, we have principles of moral action. It's like, you don't have to like discern everything yeah. in that sense. Yeah. And, and to me, it just seemed like it would save us such a nightmare of stuff, of consequences, avoid some really terrible things in our life, you know, to, to live by some of these principles that the church gives us, you know, just chastity, yeah. fidelity in marriage, you know, and, uh, do you, uh, is that part of what motivated you to study? I think it is, yeah. yeah. And uh, having experienced that myself, uh, how starting and really endeavoring to live the commandments and then really trying yeah. to live in a way that is pleasing to God, which I began to realize really wasn't pleasing to God because uh, he had sort of arbitrarily, sort of whimsically decided this is, what, this is how you jump through the hoops to please me, yeah. but because it's what was good for me, you yeah. know, and that recognition that the moral law is, is fundamentally the law about human flourishing. And that's why it pleases God. Mm -hmm. That's why sin angers God, right? Because yeah. it hurts his children, namely right. you and me, right. <laughs> us. Right. Um, and that, that somehow shifted in my mind. And I, I, it was a kind of a Copernican re revolution in my own mind, but how I began to think about the moral law. And, and it's still kind of painful to me because, I mean, a very dear friend of mine who's not Catholic, you know, recently admitted to me, he said, I'd probably become Catholic, but it's just too many rules, you know? Yeah. And this is a, a thoughtful guy. He's not a, you know, he doesn't really do this for a living, so he doesn't really think about it that much. But mm -hmm. the impression out there is that we just kind of have this never-ending series of rules that just make it, we just make it as hard as possible to become right. a Catholic and be a Catholic. And nothing could be further from the truth, you right. know. It's something so liberating uh, to live in the way that we're made to live, you know. No one says, well, you have to put unleaded gas in that car. So many rules, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, that's what will make that car run well. Yeah. And we can't seem to get that message out. And I yeah. find it to be uh, exasperating and how poorly we do that. And part of it is, 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 I mean, and me too, you know, but part of it is that we're, we're working against so many presumptions about, you know, just any hindrance at all on our liberty, especially as Americans and our perceived liberty, yeah. you know, is something that just is, we automatically rebel, yeah. um, instinctively rebel. And so we're, 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 we're sort of working against an entire tide, an entire kind of worldview that sees the person as sort of this radical autonomous self. And any hindrance on that, you better have a good reason for it, you know? I mean, it's yeah. a very kind of Rousseauian thing, you know, like where you have the social contract or whatever. Like we just have, I'll, I'll give up as much as I need to in order to live in peace, right. but no right. more. And right. it's that understanding, very legalistic understanding of law that Americans, I think, are particularly prone to. Yeah. So it's hard to overcome that, but I think that's what we need to be doing and showing yeah. the beauty of following God yeah. in that way. I remember Father uh, Fred Miller told us, uh, he's a professor at the Mount for a while, and he, he said his mother used to tell him, um, you know, be good. It's easier that way. <laughs> and I thought, that's the why. I might use it in homilies all the time. That's right. like the wisest thing ever. It's so true. I mean, yeah, it's just untold suffering. We go in a life of sin. It just beats us to our knees. Hopefully, you know, we'll repent and come back to Him. But uh, that is the challenge. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this. That's something I think Mother Angelica talk about a lot, like, you know, the persecution and things. And, and we have like real martyrdoms, real human suffering, you know, in the Middle East for Christians and things. But like in our culture, I was just—it just hit me the other day. There's just, you know, working with people and hearing their struggles and everything, and it's like you know, just trying to detach from social media and not mm -hmm. to be distracted by all this media and all the worldliness and the rat race. And I heard some guy said it so eloquently that he was. He said he was addicted to exercise, to beauty, to food, you know, yeah. anything to kind of fill him up. Yeah. 
and that's so available in yeah. our culture. I mean, even in Birmingham, the 25 years I've been here, so uh, it's like all these great restaurants are here now. It's yeah. like you can make a god an idol of anything, and and it's almost like I was I was talking to this focus missionary the other day. It was just me and this guy were driving this car, and and I said, you know, if we're not praying, we're going to be swept away by this culture. Yeah. I just don't think there's any way around it. It's like, and it's almost like I think that kind of pressure, quote unquote, persecution, whatever you want to call it, is like forming people either go to the church, find God, or you know they spin out there and have a lot of heartache. But so yeah, you know, and and I think a critical difference between what you're speaking about and persecution is that persecution is coming from whatever other source to try to sort of. Um, overcome Catholics who are trying to live their faith. But what we're talking about here is that so often Catholics are the very ones who are giving up in the face of this kind of this tsunami coming at them, you know, with all these temptations and the, you know, these the things. It's, it's, like it's like the opposite of a persecution almost, you know. It's kind of like giving up <laughs> and just being swept away, you know. Um, and it is so true if we're not praying. And I would say in addition to prayer, uh, kind of community of one form or another like you know binding together and and you know as a brother helping a brother is like a strong city right there's something about you know coming together with other christians in whatever way i mean it might be something as explicit as like a, the, the monastery or the intentional catholic community or whatever but it might also just be like having a group of catholic friends and you keep each other you go keep an eye out for yeah. each other you know yeah. and you kind of are on the same, whatever, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, text, you know, stream, right, whatever. Right. And you're kind of staying yeah. in touch and you're sending people, you know, good yeah. good articles and good yeah. links and stuff like that. You're building each other up. And there's something about three people who are bound together in that way are stronger than the sum of the parts, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that's what we need more of that. Catholics, yeah. serious Catholics supporting serious Catholics. Yeah. A lot of the homeschool communities have this built in. Yeah. You know, we, we yeah. see that in the seminary. A lot of these guys come, you know, a pretty good percentage. I don't know, a quarter of them, something like yeah. that, come from homeschool families. Uh, and sometimes these families are just sort of um, kind of models of this kind of intentional right. Catholic community with other families, you know, and yeah. they, they hang out together and they enjoy each other's company mm -hmm. and they're on the same sports teams together and, you know, uh, theater productions and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's really impressive. And yeah. you can see how vocations come out of that kind of a culture. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I've been part of a, we call them like Teams of Our Lady or it's a national organization. And like four or five couples get together once a month and just sharing and pray the rosary and things. And and I, you know, early on I was a chaplain for one. I was thinking, well, we've got to do more. There's got to be more deeper sharing. There's got to, you know, all this, this thinking of to do better. And then I just got to the point, well, just come together for any reason. You know, just get together, share yeah. what you want. But there's just a power just to have Absolutely. a little meal together, pray together. Yeah. Because it's like we are, you know, again, our, our culture, I think it's, it can be so isolating because we can find whatever entertainment we want to do and just do that by ourselves. Yeah. You know, we used to be watching All in the Family together <laughs> in the 70s. You talk about it at the water cooler. Now we're, everybody's watching something different, you know, and we're like more isolated through our entertainment and stuff that, um, and it just seems like, yeah, it's a, I've just seen it so powerful just for like couples just to share a little bit of some struggle or something and then someone can encourage them. It's just like, 
It's powerful. You know? Very powerful, yeah. very beautiful. And I'll go back to actually something you said earlier, which is I think there is a unique quality to what we're, I mean, there've always been, you mentioned restaurants and things like that. And again, in a way that's, that's always been there, it's amplified today yeah. with prosperity being what it is. So there, certainly those things are very real. Um, but there, I think what is decisively new today is the whole internet revolution, yeah. you know, the digital revolution with the, yeah. with the, uh, the social media and the access to pornography and all these yeah. different aspects of that. And even just kind of vegetating in front of YouTube for hours on end, you know, which is made like sort of clickbait, just like just made yeah. to get you to do the next one. And, yeah. you know, you look up and it's three hours later. I mean, I, this, that, that is pretty routine for high school yeah. kids, you know. Yeah. So that sort of, and, and I think that there needs to be a far more deliberate, that's, in my opinion, and having worked with some of these young guys now, the the way to tackle that has to be far more intentional than just we'll do a little bit less of it. You can do that with the restaurants. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to yeah. go to a restaurant. You know, every week it's going to be yeah. now every every other week. You right. can do that yeah. and stick to it. You really can't tell a 15 year old. Well, just do less. You know, yeah. <laughs> Snapchat or right. like you know, just get just get on the internet less. Watch fewer YouTube. It has to be very intentional, and I think. You know, there has to be a real stepping away from it for a while. Yeah. Uh, as painful as that might be, especially social media. Uh, there are a lot of reasons, and, and I think girls are even more susceptible to some of the dangers of social media than boys. But to have that period of time, like we, uh, we actually have in the seminary an entire year without social media at all. You actually have to kind of log out of all the things. You just can't use them. And they tell their family and friends yeah. in advance and stuff like that. And they find it incredibly liberating, you know, and yeah. they, some of them come back to it at the end, you yeah. know, but they come back to it in a very different mindset. Um, or just turn your smartphone into a dumb phone, you know, basically yeah. just get it down to, you know, whatever text and voice and, you know, maps or whatever, right. you know, and right. like kind of that's it and get yeah. someone else to get a code on there so you can't add anything. Yeah. Just try that for a few months, you know, yeah. get some real deliberate sort of, spe- you know, uh, detachments from these things. Yeah. It, 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 it yields a lot of profit. Yeah. Well, one thing we started this year, just real quick, is uh, we actually have the guys put the, the phones and the computers and the tablets, if they have one, outside of their bedroom at night. Just oh. to have it on like a desk out, you know, on the, right. out in, the in the main in the, uh, in the social area or whatever. And the thinking behind that is um, not necessarily that they're doing anything bad with them. Mm-hmm. We actually have our Wi-Fi off at night anyway. They could still yeah. use their phones and stuff like that. But it's not it's not so much that as it is there's something about the physical proximity of the thing with yeah. you twenty four seven that is actually I think harmful, especially to really to a young person. Mm-hmm. And they find that they're sleeping better. That they kind of it's a uh, it is liberating. So there is this kind of love-hate relationship that many of them have and we yeah. have to help them kind of yeah. navigate that a little bit more than I think we are sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard somebody give an analysis I thought it was really insightful. They, they were saying how you know, so many things just kind of lead us to live like kind of surface deep in emotion mm-hmm. and stuff and we're not living as in deeper contemplation or reason and you know we watch stimulating things that can kind of excite us you know just an action movie a very funny movie a lot of humor on the one-liners or i mean i was looking at twitter trying to follow the synod the other day and um and i just found myself reading stuff that made me angry and like after a while i said why am i reading it's like it's like this stimulating thing you know that you can easily find some a lot of a lot of humor on there and it and we can just live on that level, you know, and uh, and man, that is so uh, it's so prevalent, you know, <laughs> particularly when the like the, the the medium is starting to drive the content. Right. So yeah. like when, when those sites make money by people clicking on, on things, right. you know what I mean? Right. And so you have to design the way that you project, in this case, news. 
in yeah. such a way that will get people to click on the next, you know, right. the next thing. And that's the only way they're going to make money. Yeah. So when you build in, like, it's part of the business model. Yeah. <laughs> in order to survive, you have to like cheapen and sort of, you know, uh, in in some ways, kind of turn turn the content into something where it no longer really really projects the truth, you know, right. and really conveys the truth, even if the author wants to. Right. You know, I mean, you're going to have to stay in business, you know, and yeah. so they, there can be a, a sense in which the, the whole thing gets cheapened. Yeah. And I don't really know if uh, what what the immediate answer to that is. I mean, I think we can really, you know, I think it's important that we show our support for websites that are trying to have a little bit more in-depth yeah. and kind of more neutral uh, as much as possible projection of the news. Um, I also think that it's encouraging that you're starting to see now uh, an increasing number of podcasts that have much more in-depth content, you know, where right. you have these things that are two or three hours long, you know, <laughs> it's extraordinary, you know, like, and so somebody got me into one of those and it was a history one and it was, it was fascinating, you know, and I did it when I was driving or whatever, yeah. I put it on for another 20 minutes. I was like, I was so impressed that this was happening, but it shows that there is still a thirst, yeah. I think, for something more yeah. substantial. You know what scared me the other day? Uh, I know like Matt Fred is, is doing more videos, podcasts, and yeah, like two, three hours and I was, you know, I think it was Peter Kraft. And I was like, I'm really fascinated with what he has to say. But it's like, now I felt like, I feel like I've been kind of broken down. Have you been listening to that now? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, I think about that more. It's like, okay, what are we listening? What are we drawn to? Because now the podcasts have so much great content. Yeah. It's out there. And yet I'm still going to a sports thing or, you know, something else or something flashier, exciting, even theologically or spiritually, you know, um, like you know those thomists in washington and yeah i just saw they started another one about just purely teaching of thomas you know and i almost hit play the other day but then i i went and listened to something <laughs> else you know <laughs> and, right. uh, anyway they just yeah. there's a lot it's, of good stuff out there but but uh, it is it's pretty seductive <laughs> some of the other things and i think there it can be kind of good to have you know so the, the, the good can become the the enemy of the best or whatever it is you know yeah. where you, just to have like some period of time, almost like spiritual reading, yeah. where it's part of it's part of your it's part of your ongoing formation. You know, where you kind of you have some period of time set aside where you can listen to a more serious thing. Yeah. You know, and then you know, so it doesn't have to be all one or the other either. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Let me ask you about preaching here. I don't want to hold you too long, but uh, you know, we faith comes through hearing, um, the scriptures say, and and you know priests get beat up a lot uh you know you preach too long and stuff like that. <laughs> and i got a letter the other day that please don't preach so long it's very simple but uh it um you know there's still something effective about just talking to person you know and there's i'm amazed somehow that survives yeah. in this media drenched culture that the plots and everything of this stuff is so intricate and fast moving plots of movies and stuff that we watch and um, yet people still want to be spoken to and it can be an effective way because I, I guess that's still the way we you know convey information the most common way but do you, you how do you see the homily in its place you know in fostering faith and helping people to live the faith yeah it is a great point uh, you say that there is something that is that is really distinctive about the spoken word and the one-on-one -on -one. and I, I mean, to go back to the sort of the, the theology of the body insights, you know, that it's, it's through communication with the body that we convey the soul, you know, and that doesn't happen. Um, that doesn't happen when you're just kind of, whatever, doing it, 
doing it digitally or something like yeah. that or in an email or, or you know um i was just <laughs> I was pausing there because i was remembering that they there's actually a dubium sent to Pius the 12th about the blessing i don't know if you knew this or not you probably do it you're like television work. yeah well it was at the radio at the time oh. but um the the answer came back they, they were wondering if you listen to it yeah do you get the blessing yeah. you know the papal i think it was for the orbi orbi you know yeah. thing from rome and um and the answer was if you listen to it live yeah. you know and that is kind of a fascinating yeah. um kind of insight that there was something about that moment right. where his soul is kind of communicated through the through his words yeah. right in which he is intending to give the blessing of our lord and i think something like that happens in preaching right that 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 the word of the lord kind of is able to go if the priest is is open to it and frankly sometimes even if he's not if the lord wants to use him anyway you know that that he is able to convey something through his words real time Right. But kind of only real time. There is something different. It's okay to listen to a, a sermon later on or something like yeah. that. It's actually a good thing, I think. Uh, and we can gain insights or whatever. But there is a unique power and a quality to listen to something live and especially face-to-face. Yeah. And so I think maybe, first of all, the preacher kind of just begins with that. And knowing that the Lord wants to use him is kind of a good starting point. You know? right. And so it doesn't just become a kind of a human act and a human yeah. kind of manufacture right um and he really tries to listen to the spirit and kind of to say what the lord wants him to say and yeah that and that takes a prayer life you know you said earlier like prayer if we don't have prayer we're, we're yeah. going to be overwhelmed yeah. by the yeah. and i think that's true for the priest as well if he's not praying yeah. it's going to be hard to know what the sound of the voice the, the voice of the spirit yeah. sounds like yeah and sometimes I, I too i want to tell people that you know, and I, I'm sympathetic, you know, I mean, I came here in 1994, you know, we preach at every mass, you know, I was, the televised mass was, you know, I was serving at as a young brother, you go to seminary. I mean, I've, we've heard a lot of preaching, you know, as priests ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic, you know, to being bored or whatever, but I feel like too, there's gotta be some willingness uh, and openness on the people's part, you know, to receive and to look for the good I got a friend of mine, he always, he seemed like he's always looking for the error or the problem or the whatever, you know, it's right. like, you know, just, you got to have some, a good, you know, you have to want it yourself. There's I humility think. that yeah. is required. Yeah. To, to, there's humility on, on both parts. Right. I mean, yeah. and if it's not, if it's missing on one or the other, then it's not going to, the thing doesn't work. Yeah. You know, if the priest is prideful and it's just going to kind of convey his own, whatever yeah. agenda or doctrine or something like that, then it's obviously going to be problematic. The Lord can still work with him if he wants to, but. Um, but if the person is not humble enough to receive, I mean, I think it's a really good resolution for every Catholic, including us, is to be able to say, I'm going to get something out of every homily I listen to, right. without exception. Like, yeah. no matter how, yeah. how bad or boring we feel that it might be at a human level, yeah. there's something that the Lord wants to tell me through this homily. And if we, if we approach it in that way, I think it would really change the way we see priests and, uh, and I think be a little bit less critical. Because I think, you know, priests... I, as I said, I grew up Protestant, and in fact, there was a time when I lived with my pastor for like a summer. I forget what it was. My parents were, so I lived with him and his family, and I mean, he spent hours, hours, and hours every week on his sermon, which is, you know, 20, 30 minutes or whatever, and they were well done, yeah. uh, certainly well-crafted and everything like that, and, you know, and, and, and I don't want to take away from that at all. But I mean, a priest who is a spiritual father in a way that a Protestant pastor simply isn't yeah. is running a, around a yeah. lot, taking care yeah. of his people, you know. And so the idea that he could just spend six, seven, eight, ten hours, you know, yeah. on, a, on a sermon is uh, it would would take away so much from so many of his other. Yeah. I, I don't mean to suggest that he shouldn't prepare his homilies and maybe do so more than he does. Granted, yeah. 
Um, but also to have a little bit, of, you know, a little compassion on the guy, you know, and he's like, you know, doing the best he can, you know, in the midst of a whole lot of other duties. Yeah. Uh, I do think that priests need, we need better formation for priests. And, yeah. and I think the most important thing that the most important ingredient is prayerfulness. You know, if a priest is not a man of prayer, then he's just, there's going to be a, a there's, there's going to be missing a kind of, a, a kind of a quality to the prayer that is, that, that moves hearts. You know, yeah. and and it's through his his prayer he may have a very bland, insipid kind of uninspired homily, yeah. and it can still be very inspiring. You know, because yeah. of his life of prayer. Yeah, um, I think it's always a good thing to pray for the preacher. I guess yeah, I yeah. yeah. One last thing, <laughs> I was uh, I was at a, been going to some focus conferences the last few years, and always heard this. You know, John Paul II, you know, igniting the laity to. I think his first homily talked about living the priest, prophet, king of the laity, and um, and just Vatican II, you know, getting the laity movement to to evangelize and things. And Mother Angelica certainly talked a lot about it. But it, you know, it really hit me at one of these focus conferences where there's like 19,000 college students, and just to, and then also just to look at all the quote unquote vendors that come there, all the like different groups that are coming to you know, give out materials that attract people to their apostolate, so what they're doing. And it it just hit me, I said, yeah, I mean, this the evangelization is being done by these people, by a lot of young people, mostly, and, um, and a real revolution. And because I was thinking about when I was growing up, like in the 80s, when I was in college and late 80s, early 90s, there just wasn't any kind of presence on campus, hardly. There was a Newman Center, but very just a beat up house that had other purposes you know but i mean i thought man it's happened (laughs) not you know it always needs to get better and bigger and all that stuff but i i was like really so inspired by uh because you know a priest can't possibly do everything and and there's so many good people out there working hard to spread the faith that it is a great sign of hope for me i guess I, I agree you know i i think there was it the whole the revolution which should have happened earlier i think was waylaid a little bit by just kind of general confusion a lot of yeah. confusion in the church and in a larger culture and also frankly by what i think is a kind of clericalization of the laity that went on for so long and still goes on you know where we are kind of expecting lay faithful to renew their vocation by becoming more involved in whatever the liturgy or the church yeah. function, different things like that, which are all fine. Yeah. But those are not what the laity are all about, you know, and, 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 you know, immersing themselves in the life of the world while bringing Christ there. That's what the laity is all about. And, and what I love about so many of these new movements and groups and, and things like focus, which has just been such a gift to the church, um, is that they're kind of thoroughly lay you know in, in the best sense of the word you know that, that they're not trying to become you know um you know look like consecrated religious or something right. like that right, right? i mean they're just being themselves who they yeah. are college kids you know yeah. talking to other college kids about jesus it's right. beautiful right. Um, it's kind of exactly what's supposed to be happening and hopefully they take that and i think many of them have and will into not just some of them will in fact receive vocations to the priesthood of consecrated life which is extraordinary we have some in our seminary just incredible uh, young men and but but the, but they're going to bring that impetus, that zeal, that thirst for souls into their own family life, you know. And they're going to they're going to spread it to their husband or their wife, and and then to their kids, you know. And then like and that is that's the new evangelization right there. I think that's the key pure vision of of Vatican II about the laity. You know, it was yeah. never supposed to be. Well, let's just make them lectors. You know, that, right. that was not right. the idea. You yeah. know, even though that's not a bad thing. 
yeah. uh, this is like you said, it's like it's happening, you know, yeah. and when you see it, it's so it's a powerful. And that's why, you know, no matter how difficult things get and the confusion and everything, we can't forget those things, you know, yeah. and I said, look back and say, well, wow, the Holy Spirit really is uh, is at work, you know, and we get to see sort of glimpses of it every now and again. And you're like, my goodness, he's got a very beautiful, you know, future in store for us, I think. And, um, you know, and not to give up, you know, that, that, that sense yeah. of hope that we need to continue to have. Um, that Jesus hasn't abandoned, abandoned his church and, yeah. and never will. I know. I, I've, I've interviewed lots of young people in, you know, at colleges and stuff. And, like, you might interview somebody at a focus conference that's going to USC. And I always, there's always part of me that says, how are you Catholic at USC? <laughs> yeah. How did this happen? I mean, how, yeah. did, how did the gospel reach you in the secular, liberal, academic world, you know? Yeah. And, uh and you and it's just great it's beautiful i it's yeah it's truly such an inspiring thing and i think vatican ii described the youth as like an engine for change and you know they're they're part of every seem like every revolution that's happened in yeah. the world has been young people you know they got this freedom they're not tied down to stuff and they're just ready to give and man i mean it's kind of this quiet thing that i think a lot of people don't realize you know that that there's so much good stuff going on out there um that the gospel is taking root. Yeah, and it and it very much has the quality of leaven to it too. You know, the uh, you asked how did that guy at USC whatever? Well, because some other guy at USC, you know, yeah. came and spoke to him who looked kind of like him, who acted like him, and as another college kid, and yet spoke about Jesus in this compelling way. Yeah, and he was a senior, and this guy's a freshman. Now, this guy's a senior, and he's doing it, and he's fine. Right. You know, and it's it's just the early church all over again, or it's just not the early church, yeah. the church over and over yeah. again. You know that it's the few who sort of leaven the whole, you know, it's a little bit that goes into the bread and the whole thing is, you know, and it's, and it, that's, that's what we need right now. We don't, we don't necessarily need kind of the super widespread, you know, you know, the shallow, but broad, we need the few and deep, you know, to really commit themselves totally to Christ. And when that happens, they're going to spread, you know, they're going to yeah. spread the gospel. They're going to spread the odor of Christ um, yeah. to the people around them. And it has this kind of, um, logarithmic kind of feel to it, right. you know, where it kind of goes right. out. And I think that's what we're seeing in focus when it's like 19,000 kids. Yeah. When a few years ago it was whatever, 5,000 yeah. or something. It's like, yeah. well, that's the logarithmic scale, you know, <laughs> and it's like going up. It's, it's the principle of the leaven and it's always the few, you know, whether it's the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, all the way to the present day. Uh, and that's where I think that's going to be really encouraging because we sort of figure like we've lost the numbers and how few people go to mass and how few people believe in a real yeah. presence, how few yeah. people, how few people. You know, but it doesn't need to be many, and he, he, Jesus doesn't need that many. Yeah. Um, but he needs some serious followers. Right, right. Well, thank you, know. you so much, Father, for Oh, thanks, Father Mark. I enjoyed it. Yeah.